0: Good morning. It's great to be with you. It's so good to be back at the Compass Church. I love it here. Uh, It's always great to see you folks. Uh, And it's nice to know that uh, now that there is a second listener to Open Line, (laughs) because my wife was the first, and so now I know there's two people listening, so that's encouraging. Uh, And uh, one of the things I mention all the time on the Radio is the Moody Bible Commentary. Have you, have you noticed that? Uh, the reason is we really want to get into as many people's hands as possible because I think this is a great tool. It was written by the faculty of Moody Bible Institute uh, I had the great privilege of being the general editor and contributing to it, but uh, it helps people when they read the Bible, if they don't understand a verse, or if they don't follow the the train of thought, or if they don't understand what the implications of a passage are, the Moody Bible Commentary really helps them. And besides that, uh, if you don't want to read it, you can always use it. It's big enough. You can use it as a little coffee table. (laughs) So uh, I brought some of them and... And we're, my wife is at the table by Compass Central there uh, with my friend, a former student. They're there, Hannah. You can say hello to them. And you could buy one. And we, we are selling it for 30% off just because we want to really get it into people's hands. Uh, and so it's there. It's a great tool. Uh, I use it all the time. And so uh, that's something to know about. Uh, let's see. Uh, also, I w- did want to mention... I know uh, Jeff's leading a tour to Israel. There's two more spaces. Go fill those spaces if you haven't done it yet. Uh, uh, but also, if you can't go in October and, uh, or if you can't fit on that trip and would like to join me, I'm going to Israel in March. Uh, it's a great season to go, and it's going to be a great trip. Uh, and there's flyers at the table there that you could pick up to see about our trip to Israel. Uh, I think everyone really, it's a life-changing experience to go to Israel. Now, let's see. Uh, is there anyone here that is starting college, Christian college, or Bible school in August? Anyone starting this fall? Where? Come here. There you go. Enjoy. When I grew up in New York, there was a meteorologist in New York City who appeared on, you know, from time to time on almost every station. He just kept moving from station to station, but he's been there. He's still on the air in New York. Uh, His name was Irv Ganofsky, but everyone called him Mr. G. So they would say, uh, weather at 11 with Mr. G, you know, and that's... uh, but he was known for it. And he, he's one of these guys that really likes to give back to the community. So he often would go to the public schools and do meteorological presentations. And it was kind of whiz-bang, lots of explosions on stage and stuff like that. And kids loved it. And I heard him tell the story once about a time that he went to the South Bronx and uh, all week long... They were announcing, Mr. G is going to be here for assembly. Mr. G is going to be here. Mr. G. And so he did his, his presentation and had all the whiz-bang stuff that you'd expect. And all the kids loved it. And there was one boy sitting in the front row, kindergarten, African-American kid, crying. Mr. G couldn't understand it. So he went up to him and said, is everything okay? What's the matter? And the little boy said to him, all week long they were saying, Mr. T is coming. Mr. T is coming. <laughs> and all we got was you. You can imagine his disappointment expecting an African american hero and instead getting a little Jewish meteorologist. You know, it's it's disappointing. Uh, Now, one of the main questions I often get is, why didn't Jewish people recognize Jesus as the Messiah in the first century when he appeared? And the reason is, Jewish people were really looking for a deliverer from Rome, a military ruler, a great, powerful superhero. They were looking for that, and what did they get? a Jewish carpenter. They wanted Superman, but they got Clark Kent. And and that's why we didn't believe in him. And I think for many people, even today, people will say, I don't believe in Jesus because this seems like a weak faith, you know, one who suffers and dies. Who wants to believe in that one? He's so ordinary. You know, we want a more powerful God. And this is described in the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, we're going to study the problem of mistaken identity. It's the fourth servant song. I don't know if you remember. A couple of weeks ago, I was here and I spoke on the third of four servant songs in the Book of Isaiah. Today, we're going to look at the fourth one. It's a very famous passage. It's Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through fifty-three twelve. It is one of the most amazing prophecies of the coming Messiah and uh, we're going to look at it verse by verse and so i really want if you have a bible anyone bring a bible come on let's see if you brought a bible raise your hand okay both of you did good Put, no more of the. it's good that you brought it take it out and follow along in your bible if not grab the pew bible in front of you or pull, pull the one off your phone and follow along because we're going to go through this verse by verse this fourth servant song has five stanzas in the first one Israel uh, God speaks in the body the middle three Israel speaks and then in the last one God speaks again so you've got an intro and a conclusion where God speaks and the body where Israel speaks that's the the structure of it and God speaks of the servant's exaltation uh, in both passages and Israel speaks of the servant's humiliation and suffering in the main body of it and it really does explain the problem of mistaken identity. So get out your Bible to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. We're going to go through this verse by verse. When God speaks in the first stanza, he says, the servant will be exalted despite his humiliation. Look at uh, verse 13. Behold, my servant, this is talking about the Messiah, Jesus, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted This is speaking about the servant being exalted. Now, this should be familiar terminology if you've ever read the book of Isaiah because in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has his vision of the Lord, it says, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. The idea there is of the glorious Lord that he saw in a vision. It uses the exact same terminology. He was high and lifted up. He will be high and lifted up. The servant will. But it uses even more exalted language because it goes on to say, and he will be greatly exalted. Because this is identifying that servant with God himself. So he's speaking a very exalted language. He will be highly exalted. Not only that, but he will have an appalling and disfiguring death. Look at verse 13. Just as many were astonished at you, it is... God is speaking and he's talking about the servant and he talks about him in the third person, him, he, so forth. But at this point, he kind of steps out and he looks directly at the servant and for heightened uh, drama, he speaks directly to him. He says, many were astonished at you. And then he goes back to speaking to him in the third person. What what were they astonished about? So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form was more than the sons of man. In fact, he would have such a humiliating death that he would suffer so much, he would be beaten so that he would be just a mass of flesh and broken bones and of of bones and blood. That's what it would be like. Now, to get a picture of of how disfigured he would be is I I have an experience where, where I encountered a friend like this. I had a friend that hated New York City traffic and so he always rode his bike. And uh, he would go really fast on his bike, sometimes as much as 20 miles an hour. I mean, he was fast on that bike. And he would be zooming it through the traffic, and one day he is in the, he's driving along on his bike, riding along, and right in front of him, as he's going really fast, a pothole. And his front tire went right into it. He went flying off the bike, and he landed on his face. He broke every bone in his face, broke his nose, uh, knocked out every tooth in his mouth, and also bit off his tongue it was horrible well the next day I went to see him in the hospital and I had my son who was a toddler at the time with me and he was with his mom and she was supposed to hold his hand when I went into the room but as I went into the room to see my friend my toddler broke away from his mom and followed me into the room and when he looked at my friend whom he called uncle he said a monster and ran away because he was so disfigured. His face was twice the size of a normal face. He was so disfigured that he frightened my son. Well, that's what this is saying, that when the Messiah Jesus suffered and died, he had this appalling, disfiguring death. He was, he was just like a monster in an appearance. And then it says, there's significance to this. Thus, through this appalling and disfiguring death, He will sprinkle many nations. Now that word sprinkle is the same word that's used in Leviticus, if you've read Leviticus, where they take the blood of the sacrifice and they sprinkle it on the altar. It's the sacrificial blood. And what this is saying is he's not going to sprinkle his blood on the altar. He's going to sprinkle his blood on the nations. That his blood will provide atonement. And it's saying that he will atone for those who understand the reason for his death. And who will understand? Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. When kings finally understand who he is and what his disfiguring death has provided, that it sprinkled the nations, even they will submit to him. Uh, Now, it's hard to get kings to shut their mouths, but what this imagery is about is you see in ancient bas-reliefs of a lesser king submitting to a great king. And what they would do on these bas-reliefs that would depict it is that the lesser king would get down on one knee and take their fist and cover their mouth. They would shut their mouth like that. And that would show that they were now submitting to the great king. What this is saying is that kings, when they finally understand what he has done through his disfiguring death, that they will submit to him. They will recognize that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And what they had not heard, what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. When they finally get it, they will submit to him. And then throughout history, kings have submitted to the Lord Jesus. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords. That's what this is saying. The servant will be exalted despite his humiliating death now after god speaks israel speaks and that's in verses one through nine three stanzas and what israel says is the servant was not recognized because of his humiliation now got to get a little prophecy to understand what's happening here Uh, for the most part most jewish people not all but there's always been a remnant who believe but for the most part most jewish people have rejected jesus as the messiah And it says at the end of days in the book of Zechariah that all nations will gather against Jerusalem. That at the end of days the nations will come at the great battle of Armageddon. They will come from Mount Megiddo and come to Jerusalem and attack Jerusalem. And at that point the leaders of Israel will have grace poured out on them. And they will say, why is this happening? And they will turn to Jesus to save them. They will call upon him as their messiah. And it says they will look upon the one who is pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep tears of repentance for all the years of rejection. If we want to get what they are saying when they finally recognize who he is, these are the words of Isaiah 53, 1 through 9. This expresses, we missed you. We missed you because of how humiliated and suffering, all that made us miss you. But now we understand who you are and it gives three reasons of his humiliation that they express why he had been rejected for so long it says in isaiah 53 verse 1 who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed who could have believed this but now we know first we thought he was too plain to be the messiah We thought the servant was too plain. Look what it says. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He looked like nothing but a weed in the wilderness. He just looked like everybody else. He had no stately form or majesty. He didn't have kingly bearing that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't have charisma that drew us close to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. That doesn't mean that, and he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is not saying that the servant was ugly. It was saying that he was ordinary. And also, he was not a jovial sort, but rather he understood the sadness of life and the pain of life, and he identified with people who suffered. And as a result, he wasn't the kind of magnet that people were attracted to. He was just too plain to be the Messiah. I often think of the story of when uh, FDR would meet with Stalin. I'm a big World War II buff, so I read these books. When Stalin and uh, Churchill would meet with FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt had a great deal of charisma, but he couldn't walk. So what they did to keep his status elevated is they would wheel him into the room where he was going to meet with them, and they would put him in a big chair and a huge desk... And then they would put two little short chairs in front of the desk. And then they would bring in Stalin and Churchill, who would sit at the desk. (laughs) And there was the ebullient, powerful personality of FDR. And he would put his long, big hand out and shake their hands and cheer them on. He was the leader of the world. Well, then FDR died in office, and his vice president became president, and he met with Churchill and Stalin in Potsdam, Germany. They didn't have to go through all those shenanigans, so first they let Churchill in, then they brought in Stalin, and then Harry Truman, five foot, eight inches tall, comes in in a double-breasted suit, uh, walking rapidly, walks into the room, puts out his hand, says in his flat Midwestern accent, Hi, Harry Truman, nice to meet you. Churchill couldn't believe it. He wrote in his diary, he looked more like a pharmacist than the most powerful man on earth. (laughs) But Truman was the president and he was the most powerful man on earth. He just didn't look it. He looked plain. He looked like an ordinary person. That's what happened. We were looking for a king and we got a carpenter. Well, not only was he too plain, we thought... He was being punished for his own sin. We thought that he was a sinner. And that's why he experienced this punishment. Why, Israel says? Look, now we know, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, God, and afflicted. What this is saying is the word smitten, which is used other places in the Old Testament. It's used when Miriam speaks against Moses, against Moses and God then punishes her and strikes her with leprosy. It means to be punished for sin. And then when Uzziah offers incense in the temple and he's not a priest and he's not supposed to, God strikes him with leprosy and that's the punishment for his sin. So when we look at this it says we ourselves esteemed him stricken, punished by God for his sin and afflicted. That's what we thought of him, that all this suffering, this appalling death he was going to have was because he was being punished for his own sins. Now we know, though, that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Each of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now we understand that his death by crucifixion, he was pierced because of the wrong things we had done. Now we know that the beating was because of our sin. Now we know that the whipping is is what causes us forgiveness, healing from sin and ultimately healing in our bodies so that in the glorified state we'll have no illness. Now we know it was all for us and it was because of our sins. We're like sheep. We all stray. But now we know the Lord took all the punishment that we deserved and put it on him. It's the great transaction. We deserve death. Separation from God forever. And Jesus took that punishment we deserved and now we can know God through him when he was raised. So, but we thought... He was being punished for his own sin. There's a third uh, reason that we missed him because of his humiliation. And that is we thought he was too passive to be innocent. Look at verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. He had three trials. Actually, more, but three tried before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, tried before Pilate, tried before Herod Antipas, brought back to Pilate. In each of those cases, when accused, Jesus did not respond. He didn't give an answer. He didn't give an explanation. Now, which of us, if we were innocent of charges that we knew were capital crimes, that we could actually die if convicted, which of us, if innocent, wouldn't stand up and say, I'm innocent. Save me. Don't let me be convicted. But he didn't. So we thought that his passivity was an admission of guilt. And what we didn't understand was that by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Oppression and judgment is an idiom that means a corrupt legal proceeding. So By an corrupt legal proceeding, he was taken away. And as for his generation, the people who lived in his time, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that he would die not for what he had done, not for his own guilt, but for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. You see, we thought his passivity was a sign of guilt, but it was really a mark of love because he was willing to die for our sins. Now, verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men. Everyone that looked at it thought, well, he should be buried in the potter's field because that's where criminals are buried. But it's as if God said, Thus far and no farther. Because he wouldn't allow that to happen to his innocent son. And so it says, Yet he was with a rich man in his death. God prompted Joseph of Arimathea to stand up and say, No, we'll put him in my tomb, a rich man's tomb. Why? Why? Because God said he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He had done nothing wrong. He was totally innocent, and God spared him the final indignity of the powder's field, and instead he was buried in Joseph's tomb. Well, why does Israel say we missed him? Well, he was just too plain, too punished, too passive. His humiliation kept him from recognizing him, kept us from doing that. Now we come to the last stanza verses uh, 10 through 12, where God speaks once again. And God says, the servant will be exalted precisely because of his humiliation. The servant will be exalted precisely because of his humiliation. And he will be exalted three ways. He'll be, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I just do want you to look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now, I would change that translation. The Hebrew word can translate pleased, which is how it's done, or it could be translated as willing. I don't think God the Father took any pleasure in the death of his son. Uh, when it says uh, the Lord was willing to crush him, that makes more sense and put him to grief it reminded me of the stories that I've heard of the Holocaust that happened many times where there would be a group of Jewish people hiding from the Nazis under a stairway or in the basement or something like that, and then the Gestapo would come looking for them. And just then, an infant would start to cry. And this group knew that that crying infant would lead the Gestapo right to them, and they would, they would all die. And so a mom would take that baby and crush her against her breast and suffocate her, and give her life to save all those there. No mother took any pleasure in that, but they were willing to do it to save the whole group. And that's what this is saying. The Lord was willing to crush him and put him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. That's what he did. He—it's the same word that's used in Leviticus of the guilt offering that causes restitution between God and, and man, man, and God and between man and man. That's the restitution offering, the guilt offering, and he made himself that guilt offering—the offering for our guilt—and that's why God was willing to do it. And therefore, he will restore him in three ways. First, he will exalt him in three ways. First, he will be uh, restored because of his substitution for sinners. He will exalt in three ways. First is restoration because of his substitution. Look here at verse uh, 10 in the second half. It talks about the three ways that he is restored. He will see his offspring. The word offspring can mean physical descendants or it can mean spiritual followers. He will have followers, not rejectors. He will prolong his days. He will have life again, not death. He will, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will have pleasure not suffering. Everything that was taken from him will be restored to him. That's the first step of his exaltation. Secondly, not only will he be restored, but he will be satisfied because he knows what he has done because of the justification that he does of sinners. Look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see, and my version says it in italics, which means it's not, the word it is not in the Hebrew. He will see and be satisfied. What will he see? Well, no one's quite sure, but I have a clue. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The ancient documents that were found 2nd century BC. They found the Scroll of Isaiah, and it's virtually identical to the Hebrew that we have that our Bibles are based on. And there's one slight differential right here in Isaiah 53. It doesn't say he will see and doesn't say what he will see. It says he will see the light, which is why the NIV translates it, he will see the light of life. He will see resurrection and he will be satisfied. At his resurrection, what? He will be satisfied. Why? By knowledge of him. By when we come to know him, the righteous one, my servant, will declare righteous, will justify the many. In other words, when he comes to life, He will be satisfied when he sees that when people come to know him, they will be declared righteous before God. They will have right standing before God. And the good pleasure, I'm sorry, and he will bear their iniquities. When he sees that, he will be satisfied. This is saying that at the resurrection, the Lord Jesus will say, it was all worth it. I am satisfied with what I've accomplished. Now... Uh, There's a third way. Besides being restored and being satisfied, he will also be rewarded because of his intercession on behalf of sinners. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. In other words, he will be known as one of the great ones, the great one. He'll be in the hall of fame, a portion with the great. And then it uses military language. I will divide... He will divide the booty with the strong. In other words, as all strong military leaders, they get the booty of war. He will get the booty. But what's the booty? He will get those who follow him. That will be his reward. Why? Because he poured out himself to death. (laughs) Because he was willing to die for us. That's why he will be rewarded. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Not only did he die for us, he identified with us. He came as a man. He lived among us. He identified with us. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. He took the punishment that we deserved and interceded, prayed, uh, mediated for us who are transgressors. He interceded for the transgressors. That is what brings his reward because he intercedes for us. What a, what a great depiction here of the servant Who will be exalted. And what is so important about this, in the first stanza, God says he'll be exalted despite his humiliation. Here in the last stanza, he's very, very clear. He says the servant will be exalted not despite his humiliation, but precisely because of it. That's the message of the whole passage. The servant is the exalted one. Not because, oh, I'm going to overrule this humiliation. It's his willingness to have this appalling, terrible death on our behalf that brings God's exaltation to him. What a phenomenal passage. But so what? Now what? Are there some action steps that we can take based on it? Of course there are. Here's the first one we need to trust in Jesus for forgiveness. This passage makes it clear he's the only one that can provide it. FB Meyer said, "There's no other crown, no other brow upon which this crown of thorns will fit. It is only Jesus." I have a friend who came to believe because of reading this passage. And what he did is he typed up the passage on a piece of paper without any verse notations or bookmarkings or anything like that. And then he went around to the 200 people he worked with, one by one, and put it on their desks and said, who is this talking about? And when do you think, where do you think it comes from? What, it, what I thought was interesting is everyone got the first question right. Everyone said, this is talking about Jesus. The second question, everyone got wrong. They said, it's from the New Testament. And he says, no, no. It's from the Old Testament. Can you believe it? It was written 700 years before Jesus. It's the most amazing thing. And it tells why he came, to be a substitution for our sin. It's the most amazing prophecy. And here's what I would say. A lot of us come to church because we, you know, it's adult parents want to hang out with their kids, gives us time together. Or maybe we come to church uh, to, because our parents make us. Or maybe we come to church because we're kind of interested in this God thing but not sure what to make of it. Whatever reason, I think most of us have become followers of Jesus, but there are some people here who have not. And I just want to really encourage you, take that next step. If you're here just because you're listening a little bit, maybe now's the time to go get that Bible and start reading about Jesus. And if you've already gotten that Bible and you've been reading about Jesus, maybe now's the time to take the next step. Join a small group and study about Jesus and what the Bible says and if you've already done that and you think well maybe this really uh, I think this really is true Now's the time to take that last step which is to, of many others but the, the most important step which is to say yes I know Jesus died for my sins and rose again and now this declares him to be God and I will follow him I will trust in him nothing else for my forgiveness if that's where you're at that's the step to take today Trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Not only will he forgive our sins, he'll give us an abundant life. And not only abundant life, he'll give us life forever with him. Well, that's the first step. Besides trusting in Jesus for forgiveness, we need to follow Jesus when we're mistreated. Follow Jesus when we're mistreated. I picked this up because in 1 Peter chapter 2, it actually cites Isaiah 53. And it says there... Uh, In 1 Peter 2, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Now, I don't know if you've heard of that book, In His Steps. It was written about a whole town that decides to ask, What would Jesus do and then do it? That's kind of a a cool idea. It's where we get the bracelets from, right? But it's not talking about what would Jesus do, you know, in every situation. This passage is actually talking about what did Jesus do. When he was reviled, when he was mistreated. And look what it says. It says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What this is saying is when we are mistreated, of course there are things that we can do to stand up for ourselves. That's absolutely true, but sometimes there's nothing you can do. And then what do we have to do? We need to not revile in return, but trust the God who can deliver us. I have a friend who was unjustly treated by the leader of a ministry that he served with. The leader was a megalomaniac, and he he was uh, just really coming down on this guy and falsely accused him of wrongdoing then said he was going to have to be disciplined he was going to have to move in the middle of his daughter's senior year of high school where she was a valedictorian Uh, that he was going to get demoted he was going to get a reduction in salary all these several things well my friend said i don't have to put up with this i'm going to leave well the story had gotten out this false story he was radioactive no other ministry would work with him so he had to submit to this and so He said, I I know God wants me in ministry, so I'll submit to this. And the thing that struck me for two years of doing, going through this horrible mess, he never reviled that person. He never struck back at him. Most amazing thing. He kept telling me, I have to answer to God for my behavior, not his. And then one of the most amazing things is that the board of directors finally figured out what was going on, and they removed that leader. They restored this man to his rightful position they issued a public apology for what happened now that's great when it happens but i don't think it always happens in this life i think sometimes that happens at the judgment seat of christ but that's just as valid and just as real the most important part of this is how we behave when we're mistreated we need to behave as jesus did trust god when we're mistreated follow jesus when we're mistreated here's a third action step And that is that we should uh, be humble, stay humble, and allow God to exalt us. Stay humble and allow God to exalt us, to be exalted. This is one of the great ironies of life, that humility is what brings exaltation. Now, a lot of us don't understand humility. We think humility is thinking less of ourselves than we ought. It's not. Humility is not thinking about ourselves at all. It's, as C.S. Lewis said, it's thinking about the other person, more interested in other people, not putting ourselves first. It's I think humility is standing as tall as we can right next to God. And we understand how tall we are. You see, uh, we humble ourselves, and that's why James 4, 4.10 says, stay humble and we'll be exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is A spiritual principle. It kind of reminds me of the book, Alice Through the Looking Glass, where Alice steps into the mirror in her living room and she finds a world opposite on the other side of the mirror where everything is backwards. She wants to go forward and she goes backwards. Uh, She wants to go left, so she goes right. Uh, She wants to go up, she goes down. She wants to walk fast, she goes slow. Uh, The spiritual world is kind of like a looking glass world where everything works on principles that are opposite of those of the physical world that we live in. So, for example, if we want to be blessed, what do we have to do? Be a blessing to others. If we want to receive love, what do we have to do? We have to give love. If we want to truly live, we must die to ourselves. If we want to receive, we have to give. If we want to save our lives, we have to sacrifice them. If we want to lead, we have to be servants first. And if we want to be exalted by God, we have to humble ourselves, even as Jesus did before he received this great exaltation from his Father. This is the great lesson of this fourth servant song, that the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, was exalted not despite his humiliation, but precisely because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great reminder from this passage that foretold the coming of Jesus and how he fulfilled it, but also revealed why he would come to be our substitution, to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer and our Forgiver, Father, thank you for this great lesson from this passage, but also, Father, help us to live by it. Help us to trust in Jesus, to uh, allow him to lift us up at the right time, to deal with all the pains and mistreatment that we face in this world. Uh, Lord, help us to be like him so we can be exalted as he was. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.